A year after the condo collapse in Surfside, we check in on the mental health of those who survived the tragedy. Hello, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Tom Hudson's out today. Today, we remember the 98 victims of the Champlain Tower South collapse, and also take a moment to talk about the trauma of survivors, many of whom are facing significant mental health issues in the wake of that disaster. Also on the South Florida Roundup, the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned federal protections for the right to abortion. How will Florida be impacted by this massive change? And also, the rising cost of living and inflation are hitting poor families in South Florida especially hard. We talk to groups that provide food for those in need. All that and more on the South Florida Roundup from WLRN, made possible by Willie the B-Man, Bee Removal Specialist. I'm Danny Rivero, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Today marks one year since the collapse of the Champlain Tower South condominium in Surfside. 98 people died in that horrifying disaster. Carlos Hernandez and his girlfriend were vacationing in Colombia when the condominium collapsed. They lost everything. The memories come back and I really feel sad. It's sad in my heart, especially I lost one of my patients. And uh, I used to live on the side that collapsed first. Uh, her and the, her boyfriend. And it's pretty sad to go back in time and remember, but you need to move forward. That's life. Since the tragedy, we've seen laws and ordinances enacted across South Florida and at the state level, intending to bolster oversight on condo buildings to make sure this never happens again. And yesterday, Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Michael Hansman agreed on the $1 billion settlement. So there's a lot going on in the wake of the tragedy that left 98 people dead once the rubble was cleared. For this segment, we're going to be talking about the mental health impacts of that tragedy on those who survived the collapse and also those who work the disaster scene. Joining me now is WLRN health reporter Veronica Saragovia and Maria Bedoya, the director of student health at St. Thomas University, who's also a licensed mental health counselor. Veronica, let's start with you. You were at the one-year memorial marking the collapse of the Champlain Tower South building this morning in Surfside. Uh, take us into the scene a little bit this morning. What did it look like and how did it feel? Well, it's a tough scene because it's um area like these a pavilion that was set up right next to the barren side of the property where the Champlain Tower South stood. And, um, a lot, you know, there was a, a section with the first responders who have um, been dealing with a lot of trauma still to be able to come back to this site. And of course, the families and um, elected officials came. Judge Michael Hansman was here who led the collapse litigation. And um, a lot of families of the victims said um, some very emotional speeches. And so it's been a very tough day. And this comes just a day after you just mentioned him, Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Michael Hansman agreed on a $1 billion settlement for the collapse. Um, can you tell us what, what went into that and how are the families responding to that? Well, it's unheard of really for a case of this magnitude, of this size to be settled in one year. Um, usually this would have taken like a decade. And so the judge just really pushed and pushed the lawyers 
to come up to uh, come to an uh, you know to to work with a mediator and get both sides the um, plaintiffs and the defendants to agree on on a settlement. But um, for families, they've told me that what that means is nobody had to claim uh, responsibility, and so it comes with that kind of difficult part of it. That yes, there will be money for whatever money can do. Um, of course, not much when you've lost a loved one, but um, there won't be any anybody um, assuming guilt for the, for what happened. And um, so, but they, I mean, it was unbelievable yesterday. The court hearing was quite long and people stood up, including families of victims, the attorneys. I mean, they're all praising the judge, praising each other, praising the court appointed receiver, Michael Goldberg. And, um, you know, the judge was tearing up as he's done many a time before. And so it's just been a very emotional two days or year, really. Right. And, you know, you, you mentioned that sometimes these kind of cases take a decade or, or more even to 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 get closure. I mean, it, how, how are the families feeling with that? Because, you know, a lot of times prolonged litigation can just bring these things up for, you know, years and years on end. Um, it, is, is there any kind of sense of closure or anything from the families that they're getting out of this? Yeah, I'm, that's a great point. Like they have said that being able to put the court hearings behind them is certainly going to help. Um, but I, I can't say that I see anybody really in good shape. I mean, it's just been um, it's just been so hard because there are no answers and that wouldn't come maybe for another year. And um, I think people just feel a lot of like loss because they've lost their home and Surfside is now a place that comes with a lot of pain. And um, so I think, yeah, there's at least the, the legal proceedings and um, we'll you know that now that that will pause except for of course families will have the when they fill out their claims forms to to tell the judge about their loved one and and see how much money he would um give to each family they can choose to talk to the judge once more and tell them tell him there's the story of their loved one and that might factor into how much money they would get and so they will still need to speak with him if they want to, if they wish to though that's a voluntary process right we have we have a caller we have bruce calling in from from gainesville bruce how are you you're on the line thanks for calling in i'm fine thank you very much for allowing me to speak of course uh, please please what, go what on. i'd like to say is i worked in south florida uh, miami-dade and broward and palm beach counties uh for 34 years um as as an employee in architectural firms and i Having grown up in Miami, uh, we followed hurricanes all the time. Um, what I'd like to say is, number one, uh, regarding this Surfside building collapse, there's an awful lot of people from Miami to Jacksonville living in high-rises along the coast that are scared to death right now, wondering if their building is going to be next. Number two, regarding Hurricane Andrew, when that hit in 1992, uh, you know, it decimated a development called Country Walk that was in uh, the South Miami area. Close to the, to the zoo, came, right. What came out of that was the fact that there was a lot of shoddy construction and that building officials were paid to look the other way. And what happened was once Andrew hit, knocked out a window in any of those residences, 
the roof came off and people were dying. You know, the whole country walk development was, was, was decimated. And two years after that, I was part of, a small part of this was to change all the building codes in Florida. There was like three or four different codes at the time. And it took two years, but finally the Florida legislature approved one building code for the entire state of Florida, which was a good thing. Right. Well, um, Bruce, thank you so much for your call. Um, Veronica, kind of jumping off of of what Bruce um, was talking about, you know, South Florida famously after Hurricane Andrew did pass a lot of local building codes. Um, What... uh, what what have we seen happen since the Champlain Towers South building collapsed? Well, um, in, in Boca Raton, right, Boca Raton and Surfside had um, moved ahead of the state to, to pass stricter inspection periods. And so in Surfside, they passed the 30-year. And now, um, although the, the lawmakers in both chambers couldn't agree on how uh, on on, uh, on one legislation during the regular session earlier this year in march they had a special session later on and they were able to agree on reforms and um so now what what has been signed into law is that a building that is more than three stories and 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 close to the coastline has to be inspected within 25 years after it's built and then 10 years thereafter and other buildings uh within a longer distance from the coast would have to be inspected on 30 years and then 10 years thereafter and they will have stricter uh, they'll have to collect reserve money which is money that's available to make um, uh, um, reforms that need to sorry renovations that need to be done in a building be it you know roofs or hurricane um, hurricane doors and and some and some of these reforms have also been passed on the local level in, my, in Miami-Dade County, yes. too, I'll, I'll mention. Um, I'm Danny Rivero. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Today marks one year since the collapse of the Champlain Tower South Building in Surfside. And we're speaking with WLRN reporter Veronica Saragovia. And I also want to bring in now Maria Bedoya at St. Thomas University. Um, you can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-WLRN. 9576, I should say. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Maria, thank thank you for joining us. Um, you actually joined this program a year ago to talk about this disaster and the impact that the trauma could have on individuals in the wake of a disaster like this. Um, how does that kind of trauma present itself? Yeah, so um, as we, you know, same conversation that we've been having um, from last year, to this year, we do have what we call the primary victims, right? The family, the friends of those that were either part of the building or family members of those that, um, you know, were a part of the, the tragedy from the building. That's the primary victims. And then we also discuss secondary victims, which, like we mentioned, are the first responders, the people that came, they came out to help, um, whether it's the first responders and community members. And so it has been a year, and, you know, as we know, everyone grieves differently. Um, And so part of the effects that we still see today is what we call, let's say, for secondary victims, vicarious trauma. You know, they weren't directly impacted in terms of family and friends. However, having been there and having provided support for these families, our our medical responders, our policemen, 
our, our church clergy, you know, the rabbis and priests that have um, that were there, they definitely suffer what we call vicarious trauma. So there's still a lot of grief and processing that's still happening to this day. And in terms of how that kind of trauma presents itself, if, if someone is listening to this and, you know, wondering if they should almost do a self-evaluation, like how, how does something like that present itself in, in the day-to-day life of someone going through this? Everything, yeah. So every person has, um, it manifests a little bit differently. Some of the more common uh, symptoms would be having flashbacks, having nightmares of that event, um, getting easily triggered. So a lot of people do develop what we call anxiety attacks or panic attacks. So for instance, the fear of then going into a building that, you know, might appear to be several years older, right? And having this panic attack where I can't breathe. I feel like there's an impending sense of doom. There's an impending sense of what's going to happen. Um, people might worry so much so to the point where um, maybe they won't go into a building or, you know, they find themselves just out of nowhere, maybe talking about it or something that triggers them might spark a sense of crying um, or just uh, isolation, kind of isolating themselves from others. In first responders, for instance, or people that are in the field of the profession, a lot of times what happens, um, one of the symptomologies is what we call compassion fatigue, where they might, um, instead of outwardly expressing their feelings, they internalize it. And the more they internalize it, the more desensitized they become to other pers- other people's situations or other trauma. And so that can lead to feelings of irritability, feeling frustrated, having less compassion and less empathy with those that they work with. Um, so it can fluctuate in a spectrum depending on the person and for just for our listeners just a note um we are in just a few moments going to be talking as well about the supreme court decision overturning roe v wade so stay tuned for that we're not going anywhere um but veronica um kind of bouncing off of what maria was just saying about the 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 trauma and, and anxiety about entering buildings and about building safety and whatnot um, there have been several buildings across South Florida that have been evacuated due to this renewed pressing interest in structural integrity of, of condos. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that and what's been going on? First ones was in July, right after the Champlain Tower South collapsed in last, last year, Crestview and North Miami Beach. And I went there and I remember seeing a bunch of people in the parking lot wondering when they could get their things and people who didn't have the means to find a lease somewhere else or let alone buy furniture again. Um, So there have been at least two buildings that were um, evacuated in Miami-Dade County. And what's happened is that um, a lot of the local governments are are looking into inspections and and being more... um, careful about things being done and making sure that buildings are sound to live in. So there has been that at least coming out of this um, terrible disaster. Right. Now, I I will mention, at least in in Miami-Dade County, there was uh, an ordinance passed that if if an owner of a building basically let things fall into disrepair where people need to be displaced, that that the the building owner would have to pay for um, reaccommodation and whatnot, which is Right. And that did happen. A, mo- a recent evacuation, the tenants did get that help. But that's right. And 
Maria, getting back to the mental health impacts of this scale of tragedy, is there any kind of timeline for when things almost get better for people that are experiencing this, either secondhand or, 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 or firsthand? Um, like, how long could the impacts of this this kind of trauma last? Right, right. And that's the million-dollar question we get often when people come seek therapy. How long is it going to take for my grief um, to finally end, or when do I start feeling better? And it definitely fluctuates on many factors, right? On one end, you have folks that have a support system. You know, we have a lot of community ch churches and temples that have reached out, have done a lot of memorials, have done a lot of ritual process to commemorate those lives that we've lost, you know? Um, the memorial we have when we drive by, I mean, it feels weird to see no building there, but it's great to see the pictures and people still um, talking about it and remembering it. So it really depends on the person in terms of what support are they receiving? Are they externalizing these feelings? Are they talking about it? Are they processing? And as I mentioned, external factors do help. So I think one of the biggest things from, you know, the folks that I know have been affected personally um, that has helped is knowing that there are, there is an investigation that's still going, right? That um, The federal investigation. NISD. Right, there's an investigation and they're also trying to figure out what really was the cause. So I think a lot, for a lot of folks, once they get a little bit more answers, they also start alleviating some of these symptoms, like having a little bit more of a resolution, a conclusion. Um, and then for others, you know, like I said, we all process things differently. I have folks that will not talk about it and will avoid it at a thousand percent. And what we know in the history of trauma is that the more you avoid it, the bigger it grows, right? Like throwing a sandwich under your bed just because it's not there doesn't mean it's going to grow mold. And so then you have folks that maybe in five years or in 10 years, it might trigger and it might come up. Um, the most important thing, as I mentioned, is the more supports we can get, whatever that looks like, church, family, therapy, um, being involved in the community, giving back, that definitely helps expedite the process a little bit more, you know, in terms of that healing right. that we're all looking for. And Veronica, what have the families of victims been telling you about how they're doing as we mark one year after this tragedy today? Oh, I, I think like people are just still um, feeling very emotional. And, you know, I also wanted to bring in the first responders to this conversation about trauma. It's been a very hard um, few days for me listening to first responders who say they're still dealing with trauma. I mean, the a captain and Surfside Police Department um, was crying in a press conference, introducing a therapy dog. And then I spoke with Eddie Alarcon, who is a captain at Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. And he also um, was extremely emotional. And some of them can't come back here to this site. So it's just between the first responders and the families. They're just um, really really struggling because this one, the one person for instance who lived in the fourth floor she survived but she's just telling me this anniversary event has been causing a lot of anxiety for a lot of them and um i just i people are having a really hard time i wish i could you know say more it's just been very i, I it's just been a very emotional for all of us uh, for, for all of us exactly mm -hmm. We've been speaking with WLRN reporter Veronica Saragovia and Maria Bedoya at St. Thomas University. Veronica, Maria, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you thank so you much, Danny. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned the landmark decision in Roe v. Wade. What does this mean for South Florida? 
I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned a landmark decision that gave federal protections to women who seek to have an abortion. Many states have so-called trigger laws that in an instant made abortion completely illegal just this morning. Florida is not one of those states. But it does leave open the question of how could Florida be immediately impacted? And what kind of pressure might the Republican-dominated state government face to implement a total ban on abortion? Can they do a total ban on abortion in Florida if that's in the cards? Joining us now is Monica Skoko, who's a former nurse at Planned Parenthood here in South Florida and who is an abortion rights activist. Also joining us is Angela Curatello, the director of the Archdiocese of Miami's Respect Life Ministry. Thank you both so much for coming on. Angela, let's start with you. The the Catholic Church has long supported the kind of decision that came down this morning from the U.S. Supreme Court. How are you all feeling about this really landmark decision, which reverses a previous landmark decision that was in place for almost 50 years? Hello. Uh, yes, thank you for having me. Um, we're extremely grateful for this decision um, because, as you know, um, we strive to protect uh, human life in all of its stages uh, from conception to natural death. So we're very happy with this decision. And Monica, you're coming at this from a very different angle from the pro-choice, pro-choice perspective. What's, yeah. the, what's the impact of, of this decision? Well, really quickly, I do want to say that, uh, you know, being religious is not an, an automatic exemption. There are so many Catholic supporters of abortion and many of our brothers, sisters and in many other faiths support abortion rights. So I, I do want to say that. And, um, you know, I'm coming at this. Uh, this is a, this is a devastating ruling for many people who will not be able to access abortion. We're going to see a chilling effect, particularly for low income folks black and brown folks trying to access abortion. And, uh, you know, in Florida, we're quite, uh, we're, in, we're in a good position. We're in a better position than other places. Um, abortion is still completely legal here, um, up to 15 weeks starting July 1st. So I, I think that's a really top line issue to remind folks that in Florida, you can still access abortion up to 15 weeks completely legally. And Going on that, the, the Florida legislature recently passed a law that bans abortions at after 15 weeks of pregnancy and beyond, which is more restrictive than the previous law that allowed abortions up to 24 weeks. And that law will go into effect next week. Angela, now with this Supreme Court decision, the door to a complete ban has been opened by, by that decision. Um, will you all be pushing for that kind of ban to happen here in Florida? Because it, it, it is still legal up till 15 weeks here. Of course, of course. Um, yes, the 15 week ban is, is just a start in our mind. You know, we would like to see um, all life um, defended from its earliest stages. So from conception, but this 15 week ban is, is a good start. And M- Monica, what's the, What's the expected impact of this new 15-week law in in Florida? Well, actually, we're going to see, like I mentioned, a chilling effect of folks that, you know, are living their lives. They are taking care of their families, working hard, and they might hear the headlines and, and, and read the news real quick and think that uh, abortion is no longer legal anywhere. So we will be experiencing that chilling effect. We will also see uh, wait times and um, things of that nature to get an appointment at a clinic rise as Florida becomes 
a, a bit of a haven for surrounding states that did have those trigger laws. So we've already been seeing folks pouring in from Texas and other places. Um, so we're, we're going to continue to see that. It's going to, um, you know, continue to uh, be a little bit harder, but I really encourage uh, patients to to take advantage of the resources out there, like a women's emergency network abortion fund that is there to um, support them with all of their needs in, in accessing abortion and to know that they aren't alone and they should not feel any shame in this decision. It is a part of comprehensive reproductive health care. And, uh, you know, it is not for any one of us to say whether uh, the choice to have an abortion is good or bad, no matter how we personally feel about abortions, that decision is deeply personal and has no place in the political arena. And um, An Angela, Monica just just mentioned it, but there there are some additional protections in the Florida Constitution um, that protect the right to have an abortion, which goes well beyond the, the, the federal constitution. And I'll mention uh, Florida House Speaker Chris Sprouse sent out a statement this morning after the Supreme Court's decision saying yes. that the state constitution presents a, quote, additional hurdle for any law that would limit a total ban on abortion in Florida. Um, with that being yeah. the case, uh, what, what's what's the path forward for for? So so this the Roe v. Wade is it was a law that was passed by appointed officials, not elected officials. So this is going to put the decision back into the hands of the state and the people and their elected officials where it belongs. Um, Monica was talking about, you know, people needing services. We're here to provide services as well. We want to make sure that women know all of their options. Uh, every single one of them, we counsel them on options, all their options, and their decision is ultimately theirs, and we're here to support them. Our statistics in Florida are showing that the, mo the, the highest reason um, is because they are uh, uh, because of socioeconomic reasons. And they make those decisions also out of fear of what, what, what the future holds. So we're here to support them in that. If that's the biggest issue, we have we can solve that problem with them. We're here to walk that journey with them, to accompany men and women who find themselves in crisis pregnancies and give them time to think about what decision they're going to make by providing them every option available. Danny, in the interest of, of good faith, I do have to say, Angela mentioned crisis pregnancy centers that are known to lie and deceive patients. They absolutely do not provide all of the options. They don't speak about abortion. They, you know, Angela is, is, is speaking about one, one side of it. And really, uh, when you go to a provider such so, as Planned Parenthood, that uh, is where I, you, I, you I, will be able to access I'm, I'm, all I'm, of the different. I'm going to jump in here because I I know well, it I know I know it's a very I know it's a very heated and divisive to topic, but let's let's that. let's keep it let's keep it um, at, at ground level. Um, so you know, Danny, I do want to just level set and say, no matter how me or Angela or any of us feel personally, I really do believe that. Um, you know, every pregnancy and situation is different. 
And this is a, a decision for and a, I a patient and, and their physician. Organizations that, that deceives people. So if someone calls asking if we perform or refer for abortions, the first thing we tell them is no, we do not. But we are happy to have you come in to explore all your options. We do not lie to them. That's that's not in our wheelhouse. So no. when people Danny, call me and, me and Angela are never going to agree on this point, and that's completely fine. I, I understand but, oh, 70% of, of Americans wanted Roe v. Wade to remain the law of the land. And I think that's what's really important. Give me a second, please. If, if, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with former Planned Parenthood nurse and pro-choice activist Monica Scocco and Angela Curatello, the director of the Archdiocese of Miami's Respect Life Ministry. And we're talking to them about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision this this morning that removed federal abortion rights. Um, Angela, b- back to you. And, and Monica was just mentioning this. Public poll after public poll showed that public sentiment in this country, including among self-identifying Catholics, support the legal right to an abortion. Um, is there a disconnect between the church and its followers on this issue? I would have to say those statistics are faulty because... Most people in our country do not want abortion on demand. I disagree with that. I'm I'm looking at a, a Pew poll from about a year and a half ago that found 56% of Catholics support the legal right to an abortion in this country. I have a I have a second question to ask you actually on this. Sure, do sure. You, do you think that this decision this morning could shift the dynamic between what self-professed Catholics say and the church's position on this? I don't think anything is going to shift on the church's position for sure. Um, but we are, you know, we are hoping to educate people on the sanctity of life, that life begins at conception. It's scientifically proven. Um, and, and you know, it's, if you're if you're thinking you have to get an abortion because you're afraid or you can't support that child, there are so many other options. I just don't want people to think that abortion is their only option. And of course, we want to see an end to abortion and and a and and a culture of life and love um, in our society. And this is just the start. We and, are going to continue my, my, to provide, service, provide services. We're going to continue to support moms and dads who choose life and those who are, are undecided to help them make decisions. And I want to be clear, I support Angela's right to her beliefs and other people that have beliefs like Angela, but I don't think those beliefs should be imposed on people and prevent them from accessing comprehensive reproductive care. But I I do think this really puts into context um, the importance of the importance. I'm sorry, Angela, thank you. Monica, I have a question for you. a lot of pro-choice activists here, pro-abortion rights activists um, in South Florida have participated in the Marea Verde movement across Latin America that has been quite successful in expanding abortion rights in, in many Latin American countries in recent years. And the dynamic that's happening right now is that a lot of Latin American countries are moving towards more right to an abortion, while here in the U.S., at the federal level at least, it's moving towards less rights. Um, what do women who have participated in those movements say about this dynamic and just what's happening in the U.S. right now? 
Thank you for bringing that up. I do not think Catholicism and deep beliefs in, in the Catholic Church, I was raised in the Catholic Church, uh, necessarily are at odds with this, right? I believe that you can have your independent beliefs and your independent belief system, but uh, there is a separation of church and state, and it is inspiring to see the Maria Verde religious issue. It's really a human rights issue. I do. I think we agree there, Angela. It is a human rights issue, and women's human rights are being violated in this country. So it's really important to think about who you are voting for. What about the right? Of the, they um, will uh, let, let, let me jump in. Let me jump in here, please, 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 please. Ma Ma Monica, Angela. Let's 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 keep our our our, our cool heads. Um, but 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 but, but Angela. Um, the you know a lot of. South Florida Catholics come from Latin American backgrounds and a lot of the yes. your, your your church members, I imagine, are seeing kind of a split where Latin America is increasingly moving in one direction and the U.S. is moving in the other um, direction. What, what do you hear? Honestly, from, what do you hear from we're your not members? we're not seeing that division. I can't speak to why 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 that's coming out that they're divided. I can just tell you that traditionally Hispanics have been pro-life, um, very welcoming to life. Um, they pull together in hard situations as families and they, you know, and they support each other. What we're seeing in our pregnancy help centers right now um, is that possibly immigration could be playing a part in this. Um, you know, most of the women coming from Latin American countries are coming in. We're seeing them when they are pregnant and they are choosing life. But what we're seeing afterwards is that as they're trying to acclimate to our society uh, in the United States, it's very tough economically and so they're you know most of the women are having abortions they already have children this is women who already have other children and feel maybe that they can't have another child because they're struggling in a new country and so that's where we're here to support them in any way that we can to show them that it is possible to you know to to bring life into the world and that we are here for them and last question for for both of you one, one at a time please um what's next in this in this battle in this in this fight over uh, over abortion rights um in this country or or you know the the fight to overturn uh, the right to an abortion angela let, let's start with you what's next well what's next is um i'll leave that to our state legislators uh to, to work on that well we, we will be supporting them um moving forward and our our plan is just to continue walking with men and women who need our services um providing them all the love and care that we can um, so that they understand that abortion is not their only choice. And if they do choose abortion, which they sometimes do, we are, you know, we're saddened, but we are always here for them as well with post-abortion healing programs. And, and uh, Monica, quickly, um, what's, what's next on your side? Uh, on our side, we continue to fight. We continue to maintain, like Angela said, abortion is a human right. And we, it is an essential part of reproductive health care. And it is being stripped from the women and people of our country. And we won't stand for it. We're going to make sure that uh, we hold our elected officials accountable. And we make sure that if they are not serving us, the serving the 70% of Americans that support abortion rights, we vote them out of office. Well, thank you both for, for joining. I know it's a, a very passionate topic. I, I appreciate both of you coming on and, and willing to, to talk with us. We've been speaking with Monica Scocco, uh, uh, an abortion rights activist here in South Florida, and also Angela Curatello, the director of the Archdiocese of Miami's Respect Life Ministry. Thank, thank you. you thank you both for coming thank you. on. Thank you. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, the price of food is skyrocketing. 
and we talk to groups that help the poorest among us keep food on the table. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The cost of gasoline has recently hit an all-time high amid a war in Ukraine and widespread supply chain issues that were already driving the costs, the everyday costs up for everyday people. The result is that the price of everyday food items has shot up, along with the housing costs, which have risen faster here in South Florida than anywhere else in the nation. And this happens as the Federal Reserve acknowledges that a recession could be coming, which would hit lowest income families hardest. So how are people dealing with the current situation right now in South Florida? What tactics are they using to get by? And how are some groups mobilizing to help the poorest among us weather this financial storm? To help us understand how South Florida families are feeling the pinch of inflation, we're speaking with Danny Agnew. He's a co-founder of the Roots Collective in Miami. And we're also bringing in Paco Velez, the president of Feeding South Florida. Danny and Paco, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Danny. Paco, let's start with you. Um, Feeding South Florida has a huge footprint in communities across South Florida, from South Dade up to Palm Beach County. What are you hearing on the ground from families who are feeling the impact of the rising prices for so many things, chief among them food? Well, thank you for having us. And uh, we're we're hearing a lot from our families. It's it's just seemingly a nonstop, uh, it's nonstop uh, hits for our families. First, it was the pandemic, and we saw over 1.5 million individuals struggle, uh, most of them for the first time because they uh, they lost their jobs after the after we started closing down. Um, now we're we're looking at uh, a huge increase in fuel, in, a huge increase in rent, uh, so much so that uh, Miami Dade has is in crisis, a uh, housing crisis, and uh, and we're also seeing uh, the food costs go up. So families are coming to us a lot more frequently, uh, asking for food assistance, wanting to make sure that they continue to put food on the table. There, we're helping them with with uh, federal benefit applications, SNAP benefits, Medicaid, WIC. Uh, but those those resources, those dollars are just not stretching as far as they used to. And they're they're forced to make these difficult decisions on, on to keep a, a roof over the head, fuel in their car, you know, utilities on in the house or putting food on the table. So it's it's pretty dire for our families. And Danny, your group, the Roots Collective, works primarily in poor black communities in Miami-Dade County. Um, what are you hearing from from the families who who come in and who you help service? So I'm, I'm here with my business partner, Isaiah Thomas, as well. Um, but it's been a difficult ride for a lot of uh, families in South Florida, especially in Liberty City. Um, I don't know if a lot of folks know, but we, uh, along with our partner, Serena Jones, have started a community pantry in Liberty City on 55th and 7th Avenue. And uh, over 250 people a day are in need of food and we help try to fill that void. And the conversations that we're having with some of these families are, are some of the most difficult conversations we've had in a very long time. We gotta understand that uh, most people think that if you need food, you might be houseless or homeless. That's not the case nowadays. A lot of the folks who come to the fridge have jobs. They have whole families that they have to provide for. And so we're seeing right now a real shift and the way things are moving here in South Florida. Um, and so we need a lot of help and support to try to minimize 
these uh, the, the amount of people who need these services. Um, we started this program as, like I said, to fill a void, but now it's getting to the point where we need some governmental uh, help to try to uh, minimize these these families and these needs. And and Paco, kind of going off of what what Danny said, um, are you are you seeing a shift in in how many people or what kinds of people? are coming to, to feeding South Florida in need of assistance? Well, Danny makes a good point. I mean, we, we've, we've been serving our, our community for, for a while, and, and we, we consistently see fam- working families. Um, every time we do surveys, uh, over half of the families that we serve have at least one working adult in the household. And, and to Danny's point, there, there, there is a misconception that that is it's, it's primarily the homeless or folks that are not working but the reality is it is working families but what we are seeing is is a huge increase in the frequency of visits and the amount of of times families are coming to us because we're, before it was once a month once maybe once every two weeks but now it's just weekly if not more than once a week their families are having to come in and and uh, and shop for groceries so it's 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 a lot of families, and we're seeing we're seeing exactly what Danny's seeing across the four county area. And 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 Paco also also to you, your group does a lot of work in urban and rural areas. Um, are these areas being hit in the same kind of way, or is there something of a difference between more rural areas and more inner city areas? Well, the the rural areas, the the areas that we've we worked with are um, South Bay, but mostly out in Belgrade. Uh, Belgrade itself has has issues with with employment. There aren't really a lot of places to work. And just um, just so for the listeners, that's um, close to Lake Okeechobee in in Palm Beach County. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, so out in the Glades area, South Bay, Pahokee, and and Belgrade, uh, families really just struggle to work. I mean, that's an area where where I believe there's a waiver uh, to 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 allow families to access benefits uh, without. A job because there is no job there are no jobs to be had so it's a little bit different plus the other part is there's really not a lot of areas to shop or a lot of places to shop in some of these rural areas but when you look uh down for instance like danny said in liberty city that's another area where there are not a lot of big box grocery stores or big name grocery stores so families are having to figure out how to get to a grocery store either on a bus or walking or go to their local convenience store where the where the the cost is going to be a little bit higher I'm Danny Rivero. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with Danny Agnew from the Roots Collective and also Paco Velez of Feeding South Florida about how poor families are weathering the storm of inflation and rising cost of living. Um, Danny, I want to ask you, because it it dawns on me that the rising costs of all these goods can also impact your organization as well, because a dollar isn't stretching as far today as it might have stretched a year ago or two years ago. how how is as an organization how are you being impacted in your operations with these rising costs and your ability to to help people with the amount of money that you have so this is isaiah um another partner of the roots collective and the rising cost of goods is really affecting our overhead mm-hmm. and when it comes to youth programming when it comes to our pantry the price of food the increase of food costs is um, affecting us in several ways. Um, we provide three-tier meals for our families. So we have houseless meals, we have families that can cook at home meals, and we have 
families that have access to a ref, um, just probably a microwave so they receive non-perishable items. And the rise of food costs is affecting the amount of meals we could give out per day. But what's happening, as families run out of their food assistance, their government food assistance program, our numbers are increasing towards the end of the month. So we'll start off where we're feeding 100 to 105 people at the beginning of the month. But towards the end, Sharina is feeding about 260 members of the community daily. And that food cost is a strain on the overall operations. It's a strain on the amount of programs we can really complete here at Roots Collect. And, and and we have to definitely give a big shout out to organizations like the Miami Foundation, who has really focused in on grassroots organizations who's doing the work and trying to give us some assistance. Um, because- I, 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 did, I did want to mention that. Yeah, your your group, the, the Roots Collective, just got a grant this week from the Miami yeah. Foundation. Yes, and it's, it's, it's grant dollars like that, that like that that really help us keep pushing. We actually had conversations earlier this year when we were trying to figure out if it's nece- if we could keep our doors open. And so the support that we're receiving from individuals who have resources is really helping us to continue our fight and actually expand the work that we're doing. And so even even with our youth program last year, we had twenty five individuals. This year, we have almost over 50 kids at our location in Liberty City. Um, and with the help of the Healing and Justice Center, we're able to, to provide access to education to youth in our community. So right. we've... we've I, I want to... I Paco, sorry to cut you off, Danny. Um, but Paco, I want to ask you also about the, the impact of rising costs on the ability of Feeding South Florida to do what it does. How, how are you all being impacted? Uh, well, first, I want to congratulate Danny and Isaiah on, on, on the grant from the Miami Foundation. That's that's a huge lift and and uh, just a, a, a lot of great hope for the community. Um, for us, we have a, a fleet of 30 big trucks. Um, we have they all run on diesel and we have three home delivery vans also running on diesel. Uh, so all our partner agencies, we work with over 300 different nonprofit organizations embedded in the community, trusted uh trusted resources in the community. So we deliver to every single one of those um, agencies and the, the food we deliver is, is is free to them. The delivery is free to them, but we're seeing our diesel fuel costs uh, rise 53% over, over last year. So it's a pretty significant increase, especially when we're driving all over, all over South Florida to make sure that we're bringing food in and then also getting food out. So it's, we've, we've seen that increase in, in, uh, in fuel, we're also seeing when when we can't get certain items, we buy in in, in bulk, so we buy by the trailer load. Uh, those those uh, those costs are also going up as we get food from across the country, uh, whether it's donated or purchased, we have to pay for that transportation, um, and and those uh, those those uh, the food costs as well as Danny and Isaiah mentioned are are increasing as we get those from from manufacturers across the country as well. And and Paco is is there any way out of this spiraling situation where there's more people who are in need from what you're you're telling me and then it's also becoming more and more expensive to provide that help like is the government helping you all with with increased funds are you asking for more private donations like how how is there a way out of this that's the that's the that's the billion dollar question at this point i think you know when you have i mean that's that's what danny was talking about earlier the the government response there hasn't really been a government response or at least a something that's changed anything but when you have 
when you have all these all these challenges at one time from fuel to and that fuel impacts food and you have housing all these things that are combining to to really uh, hurt our, our our working families and these are the working families that that take care of us right we're 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 folks that are are are, are growing our food folks that are are putting food on our table all these folks are the ones that are struggling to put food on their own table so I don't know what the the magic bullet is. I actually don't think there is a magic bullet. We just have to uh, find the right policies to put in place that are going to protect and and help our families, as opposed to putting policies in place that that hurt our families. And Danny and Isaiah Thomas, um, with the with the Roots Collective, I want I want to ask you all um, because you're. You know, Paco works with a very large organization, Feeding South Florida, and you guys are kind of a lot smaller. Uh, you, you you serve a very specific community. Um, like, what are the next steps for you all? I mean, you just got a grant from the Miami Foundation. What do you have coming up down the pipeline? Yep. So, yeah. So, so, so right now we are in the middle. We're actually um in a room in our office uh, we have about 40 teenagers right now at our shop for our youth program our summer youth program where we team with the healing and justice center of miami so that we're right here now and sharina is right down she's cleaning up the fridge from her um daily work at the pantry so next in line we, we want to expand our youth program into not only summer winter and spring break camps to after school programming, weekend programming, planting seeds in our students and our youth in different ways and showing them different ways, as well as um, Sharina has a, vi a vision of transforming the pantry into a community grocery store. So those are our two main things that we're looking at on our nonprofit side. And Danny is gonna continue. Yep, and so, I, I, so with the-, the we, Sorry, we only have, we only have uh short amount of time um paco i want to ask you very, very quickly because we're about to run out um what's next for for feeding south florida so for us we're, we're looking at i mean we have oh, our. I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry i actually have to cut out um i, I apologize very much um we've been talking with with danny agnew and isaiah thomas co-founders of the roots collective in miami and also speaking with paco velez the president of feeding south florida Thank you both so much. It's been a cram show today. Thanks for working with us. Um, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor of news. The director of radio operations and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Danny Rivero. Thank you for calling and thank you for listening. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.